Okay. So we have quite a variety of people here today, and I want to uh, welcome you all. Some of you have come to the Abbey many times before, and we know very well. Some of you were just at the Relic Tour and are coming up for the first time, and some of you may have heard about the Abbey from different ways and, and are coming. So welcome to all of you. Um, I think today I'm supposed to talk about the, the Tibetan tradition, right? Because we've been, um, is the book here at all? Okay, we've been, uh, on Sharing the Dharma Days, we've been going through this book called um, Taming the Mind and going through it like chapter by chapter, one chapter each month. So it's, we're kind of at the end of what, a two-year process? Uh, <laughs> you know, but actually uh, talking about the Tibetan tradition today is, is quite a good topic because uh, it'll give the new people an introduction to, to what we're doing. Okay? Uh, there's many different Buddhist traditions. Um, there's a few reasons for this. One is that you know, Buddhism was initially taught in ancient India uh, and then as Buddhist uh, disciples went to other places, they brought the teachings with them. And uh, so people in different geographical areas began to practice and they picked out certain things, certain points that they emphasized or adjusted things according to, you know, visible ways of practicing according to uh, the climate and the, the society there. Um, another reason there's different traditions is because people are different and uh, they have different dispositions, different interests. And so the Buddha taught a whole realm, not a whole realm, a whole array of, um, of different practices so that people could select what is really suitable for them. And so we have different traditions that emphasize uh, different practices or present the teachings in specific ways. But all of the teachings are rooted in the Four Noble Truths which talk, the first one is, is uh, what's called the, the truth of unsatisfactory circumstances. In other words, the situation that we live in. Then the origin or causes of our, of our misery. Then the possibility of ceasing them. And then the path to cease all the misery and its origins. So all the Buddhist traditions are based on those four uh, those four principles called the Four Noble Truths. Um, many times people uh, ask me, well, what's the difference between this tradition and that tradition? And I don't like that question, so don't ask it. Okay? <laughs> um, the reason I don't like it is because um, uh, we're already picking out differences before we've understood the unity. And I think it's very, very important for us to understand the basic essential uh, teachings of the Buddha that are present in, in all of the traditions. And so that's some of what I want to convey today. Okay? So, you know, first was, of course, the, the Four Noble Truths that I just briefly outlined. But one of the, the main principles of Buddhist practice is that uh, the practice is about transforming our minds. 
It's not about worshipping an external uh, supreme being. It's not about pleasing a supreme being. It's about transforming our minds. Because according to uh, the Buddhist teachings, our suffering and our happiness comes from our own minds. Yeah. So it, it's not about mm, doing something in a relationship with an external being. It's about changing the internal being here. Okay. Which in some ways is much harder, isn't it? You know? I mean, it would be very nice kind of uh, to think, well, I have no responsibility. It's all the will of some other being. So I just have to convince that other being to, you know, give me what I want. So in some ways that appears nice, but in another ways it's a really difficult position because how are we going to convince somebody else to give us what we want? We've been trying to do that our whole lives. And the world doesn't cooperate. You know, our parents don't give us what we want, and our family doesn't give us what we want, and our bosses, you know. So we think an external being is going to. So rather in Buddhism, we, we really say that the whole thing is centered on what's going inside here. Okay? And so we focus on changing what's in here. But before we can change it, we have to see what it is. Okay? And so uh, we have to look within ourselves and see what is actually there. You know? How does our mind work? What is our mind to start with? And then how does it work? And what are the positive mental states that uh, are conducive to happiness? And what are the destructive mental states that are conducive to a lot of misery? And so to really uh, be able to look at those and differentiate those, and then to know that we have the ability to uh, oppose the destructive mental states and enhance the constructive ones. And so that's basically what our practice is about. Okay, And the thing is, nobody else can do it for us. Yeah. If we have a destructive mental state like hatred, we're the only one who can change it. Yeah. I'm sorry to say that you know, the scientists have not come up with an, with an anti-hatred pill yet. Okay? You know, certain medications can soothe you when you're anxious or, you know, kind of calm your mind. But there's no, you know, physical thing that can change and eradicate our emotions so that they, you know, these negative emotions so that they are no longer there. The only thing that can eradicate them is by completely seeing first how those, those destructive uh, emotions are based on uh, false interpretations of what's going on, how they're based on distortion, and then also applying a correct understanding, you know, replacing those, the, the destructive emotions with constructive ones that are based on a correct understanding. Okay? So it involves really learning a lot of things and then practicing them in our own lives. Yeah? 
So in the Tibetan practice, sometimes we, we do things with visualization and we, we do request prayers to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and so on. But the real thing that we're doing is requesting the potential Buddha we can become in the future, who's inside here, to wake up. You know, kind of, okay, my sleeping Buddha, you know, sleeping beauty, sleeping Buddha, you know, my sleeping beautiful Buddha inside here, it's time to wake up. Okay? And, uh, you know, and in that way, discover our potential and activate our potential to become fully enlightened beings. Okay? So this is, is really what, what our practice is about. Um, so it takes a little bit of courage, you know, because to, to really uh, look at what's going on in our mind, sometimes it's, it's like, well, it's a big adventure, a big exploration. But as in any exploration, you find delights and you find disasters. Yeah? And so sometimes when we are looking in our mind, we see this incredible delight and, you know, our ability to have love and compassion and wisdom and so on. And then you also see some of the disastrous mental states that we fall prey to that just create uh, one problem after another in this life and in future lives. Yeah? So it takes a lot of courage to, to be able to look at all of that and acknowledge it as all part of us and not get self-critical because that's just another one of the disastrous mental states. Um, but instead, really learn how to transform our mind and uh, you know, make our mind more in line with reality and with what is of benefit. So, um, that is true for all the, the Buddhist traditions. Yeah? That, that is, you know, all of them. The Tibetan tradition in particular um, is, is, is unique in the sense that it includes all the practices of all of the traditions. You might have to look a little bit deeper in one way or another, but in, this, in the Tibetan, scriptures that the Tibetan tradition relies on, you find the practices that are found in also like Zen or Pure Land or Theravada or so on. So it's a very complete uh, set of teachings. And so we have the teachings here. You know, you have the, these are the sutras, the discourses the Buddha himself gave. And these are uh, the commentaries by the great Indian sages. So you can see that the Buddha's teachings are quite vast, and the commentaries are vast. It's not just, you know, people say, well, well what's your Bible? Um, but we don't have a Bible, yeah? Uh, the Buddha's teachings, you know, were recorded. He, he spent 45 years teaching all over India, and uh, that's you know, the record of some of them, actually, not even all of them. Um, but, it, you know, it gives you an idea of the vastness 
of what is contained in the teachings. Uh, so in the Tibetan tradition, we have various levels of practice. Um, we all start out as beginners. Now, of course, we all would like to start out as advanced practitioners. <laughs> you know, we don't want to futz around with the beginning because, you know, we're kind of... We're wise already, you know. We want to... Who wants to be a beginner? Um, actually, it's so nice being a beginner. Yeah. Because when you're a beginner, you look at everything new. You look at everything fresh. You don't have so many opinions about things. You know, when you're a beginner, you aren't arrogant. Yeah. When you know a little bit, that's when you get arrogant. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? You know, when we don't know anything, then our mind is quite open and receptive and innocent. When we learn a little bit, then we get a little bit kind of uppity. You know, and then that arrogance becomes a big obstacle in our practice. You know, because we start to think, well, I'm too good for the beginning teachings. I want the high teachings. I'm a high practitioner. You know. And uh, clearly, if you think of a holy being, your uh, conceit is not one of their traits. <laughs> yeah. So when we get a little bit conceited and arrogant, you know, over the, what we think our level is, then actually we're uh, very much at the beginning of the path, maybe below beginning. Yeah. <laughs> But we think we're up here. Okay, so at the the beginning of the path, what we're trying to do is overcome the very gross negative states that we have and the very gross negative actions. Okay, and so here uh, is one area where Buddhism shares a lot with other religious traditions. Um, because all religious traditions, all spiritual traditions, even secular uh, people, value ethical conduct. You know, and so ethical conduct is really the beginning of the path. Don't you wish our politicians and CEOs and people on Wall Street understood this? You know, wouldn't the world be different? if people actually practiced ethical conduct? Yeah. Like not lying, not stealing, not sleeping around, not killing others. Yeah. Not trashing people behind their back. Yeah. Not speaking harshly to them in front of their face, not gossiping. Yeah. All these kinds of things, this kind of behavior, that we do physically and verbally and mentally that creates so much so many problems in our lives right now and it, they uh, this behavior also implants in our mind uh, what we call karmic seeds karma means action so it's our verbal physical mental actions that really that leaves a residual uh, trace and that residual trace is called karmic seeds and then when these seeds ripen, they become 
uh, they, they ripen in terms of what we experience, either later this life or because in Buddhism we believe in future lives, uh, then our actions ripen in terms of what we experience in future lives. Yeah? So it's very important since uh, f- you know future lives are certain, whether we believe in them or not, and there's a whole discussion. It, well, it's like, you know, uh, rat poison will kill you whether you believe in it or not. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, same thing here. Um, there's all sorts of arguments to, to prove rebirth, which I won't get into right now. But if you look at, at the book Open Heart, Clear Mind, there's a, a chapter on that that can be helpful to you. Um, but uh, you know, we make a lot of preparation for our old age, and we're not even sure we're going to live that long. Yeah, and yet our future lives we tend to ignore, uh, thinking, well, okay, come what may. But but those are things that are are actually going to happen. Yeah, and so at the beginning of our practice, what we want to do is not only have a more peaceful lifetime now but especially prepare for a future life by creating the causes that will ripen into having a good future life. Yeah? Because whoever we were in previous life did that, and that's why we have the rebirth we have right now. Yeah? We kind of have to say thank you to our previous lives, don't we? Yeah? Even though we don't remember them. Of course, we don't remember when we were a baby either, but, you know, that doesn't matter whether we remember or not. Okay? So, uh, you know, having a happy life now and preparing for our rebirth uh, is very dependent on ethical conduct, you know? And, and actually, ethical conduct is a stream that you find in all the different levels of Buddhist teachings. They all have... Uh, some type of precept that that you uh, train your mind in. And these precepts are really good for giving us a container or a, um, a structure so that we can check our actions. Yeah, Because when we're little kids, what checks our actions is fear of punishment. Yeah? Mom and dad are going to find out, or the police are going to find out, or somebody is going to find out. And so out of fear of punishment, you know, then we don't do certain things. But fear of punishment doesn't really work as, a, um, as something to, to establish a good spiritual practice on, <laughs> does it? You know, you, nobody wants to go through their whole life uh, with fear. Yeah. But... Uh, the way it's presented in Buddhism is as simple cause and effect. We create the causes and we experience the effects. Yeah. It's like when you're cooking a meal. If you use good ingredients and you pay attention to, to what you're doing, you come out with a good meal. If you, 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 know, if you don't pay attention and you use rotten ingredients... And then, you know, you go to sleep and everything's burnt. Then you come out with a bad meal. So the good meal isn't a reward and the bad meal isn't a punishment. They're just effects of 
our, our own actions. That's it. So we create our future. So it's, you know, our responsibility to kind of get our act together. And ethical conduct is what helps us get our act together. Of course, to live as an ethical person, it means that we can't follow every impulse that arises in our mind. And uh, we happen to live in a culture that is very impulsive. And, and you know, an idea arises in our mind of, I want this, and there we go, you know, I'm going to get it come what may. Uh, But we really have to check that kind of mind because when we just follow uh, our impulses without examining, you know, the results of our actions, we wind up very often in big messes. Wouldn't you agree? I think we've all had experience doing that. Everybody here made bad decisions sometimes following our impulses that looked good, but they weren't. Yeah, we've all done that. Okay. And so let's learn from those experiences and, you know, not be so, uh, you know, quick to indulge in our impulses. Yeah. But really stop. Okay, an impulse comes in the mind. Well, okay. What's going to be, you know, what are the ramifications if I carry this out? How does it influence me in this life? How does it influence the people around me? What kind of karmic imprints or karmic seeds does it put in my mind stream? And then after, you know, some close reflection, then to decide whether to do it or not to do it. Okay, that works much better. I do a, a lot of prison work. I mean, many of the Abbey monastics do. And uh, one of the big things we find is people are in prison because they don't stop to reflect on that. You know, it's impulse action with no reflection in between. Okay. And, uh, you know, many of us do the <laughs> impulse action minus the reflection, and we just haven't gotten caught. But whether we get caught or not in this life, the future life results come. So we have to be careful with it. Then, um, so there's many practices within Tibetan Buddhism that address that level of practice, you know, really trying to get our ethical conduct in shape. And so here we do... uh, some what we call analytic meditations, in other words, reflection meditations, where we're thinking about different points that the Buddha taught. For example, when the Buddha described our human potential, when he talked about the fact that we're going to die, and so what is it that makes our life meaningful, and how to live a meaningful life. When the Buddha talked about relying on what we call the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, for our spiritual instruction and rely on them as our spiritual guides. And then, so all these kinds of practices, then they help us to get our ethical conduct in shape. Okay? So that's what we focus on at the beginning. Um, In the second step of practice, we want to overcome this whole cycle of existence altogether. 
So this cycle of existence, sometimes in English we call it cyclic existence, the uh, Sanskrit term is samsara, which I know is also the name of a perfume. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And Nirvana is a rock band. (laughs) But... (laughs) You know, samsara really—it's—it's it's not perfume. It's—it's uh, it's actually pretty stinky when you investigate it. <laughs> yeah, because samsara is nothing more than this cycle of rebirth, going up and down and up and down. You know, getting born and dying, getting born and dying again and again and again. Yeah, and while it certainly beats being bored, it's. Nothing desirable, okay? When compared to nirvana, which, as I said, is not a rock band, but a, uh, a state of bliss in which our minds are free from all the <coughs> mental afflictions, okay? where we never get angry again, or never get jealous again, or thoughts of greed don't arise in our mind. So all these, you know, the, uh, the beings, liberated beings, uh, who have freed themselves from cyclic existence, don't have self-esteem problems. They don't have anxiety problems. Yeah. So all these kinds of disturbing emotions that plague us, the liberated beings don't have. Yeah. Because they've eliminated the causes for being reborn and the principal cause for for rebirth is ignorance, not knowing uh, the ultimate nature of reality. And so the Buddha gave a whole series of teachings on the ultimate nature of reality so that we would learn how to um, discern it and how to focus our mind on it. Okay? And so that's another level of practice that the Tibetan tradition uh, contains is all sorts of teachings about the nature of reality. Okay, How do things really exist? When we ask the question, who am I? What's the answer? What's the real answer? Yeah? So we always say, who am I? When I was a little kid, my mother used to say, who do you think you are? (laughs) It was a good question. (laughs) It just took me a while to get get it on another level, you know. Who do I think I am? And am I the person I think I am? How do I really exist? Because it's all this confusion about how we really exist and who we really are that uh, that sets the stage for our unethical conduct. Okay, so really trying to investigate the nature of reality is is essential in order to be liberated from the cycle of existence. And in investigating the nature of reality, we have to really learn. We can't just, you know, sit down and, wasn't there, what was that one? What is reality? Wasn't it in hair? Wasn't that one of the questions? 
you remember the musical hair? Yeah, wasn't it, what is reality? Isn't that one of the questions? Oh, the younger generation is looking at me like I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> but it is true. What is reality? It's an excellent question. Okay. So we can't just sit down and you know invent our own idea of reality. Well, we can, but it's likely to be wrong, you know. And we've been inventing our own ideas of reality for a long time and haven't gotten anywhere. So it's better to learn from the Buddha, somebody who has realized the nature of reality, and then contemplate that ourselves, okay? And this contemplation isn't just a thing of, well, the Buddha said it, therefore I believe. It's really thinking about what the Buddha said and applying it to our own experience, and, and seeing if it works, seeing if it true, if it's true. Yeah. So spiritual practice is a very uh, introspective, personal one. It involves really applying things to our own mind. You can learn lots of words. You can learn lots of concepts. If you like numbered things, Buddhism is the best religion for you because there's three of this and four of that and five of this and two of this and six of that and 37 of the other thing and 51 and 108 and there's lists of this, that and the other thing. You can memorize them all. But that doesn't mean you have any internal wisdom about the nature of reality. Okay. So the purpose of all those lists is to give us a structure to explore within which to explore the nature of reality. But the exploration is something we have to do inside here. It's not a term of remembering the word. It's not a thing of remembering the words and concepts. Okay? It starts with remembering the words and concepts. But that's not the, the end of the game. Okay? It's like, you know, the start of a meal is looking at the recipe book. Mm-hmm. But the recipe book is not going to fill you up when you're hungry, mm-hmm. is it? Yeah. You can't eat a recipe book. Yeah. You have to do what the recipe book instructs. Yeah. Then you, then you get full. But you can't eat the book. So in the same way, you know, we can read lots of books and learn <coughs> lots of words and vocabulary in this, and that's very good to do, but it's not going to solve our problem alone. That alone will not solve our, our problem. Yeah. Okay, so we have to really practice and look at what's going on inside of ourselves. I get very interesting emails from all over the world and somebody wrote me a whole list of questions about this, 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 this. And, and I wrote back and I said, you're going to have to think about this yourself. <laughs> you know? Because I gave you the framework and you have to look inside your own mind and see how it applies to you. I can't answer these questions. Or I could answer them, but that's not going to satisfy you because another person's answer 
is not going to, you know, my eating doesn't fill your stomach. Okay? So I wrote her and, you know, it was the most truthful answer I could give. Maybe not the one that made her happy, but, you know, if, if I'm going to be truthful and helpful, that's what I have to say. Okay, then the, the next level of practice in Tibetan Buddhism, or in Buddhism in general actually, is when we really open our hearts to the wish not only to get out of cyclic existence ourselves, but to fully expand all of our potentials so that we can be of the greatest benefit to other living beings in particular by leading them out of cyclic existence. Of course, first teaching them ethical conduct, but then also teaching them the wisdom aspect of the path so they can get out of cyclic existence. But in order to really be able to guide others in the best way, we need to uh, eradicate our own self-centered thought. And we also need to eradicate all sorts of subtle obscurations on our, on our mind that impede our ability to, to really know what is best for others at any given moment. So in the, this third cycle of teachings, we focus a lot on love and compassion and how to overcome the self-centered mind, how to develop a mind that cherishes others genuinely, In other words, a mind that is impartial in who we cherish, that doesn't cherish just our family and friends. Because that's easy, isn't it? Well, maybe not all of our family. (laughs) But some of them, okay, and our friends. You know, so cherishing the people we like, that's, you know, who needs to, to learn how to do that? Okay. But it's the people we don't know that we need to learn to cherish and also the people who harm us, people we don't like. We need to learn to cherish them too because none of these roles as friend, enemy, and stranger are secure. They're all changing all the time. And one person can be all three depending upon what's happening at any particular moment. We have to really open our heart and mind. And this is hard. The teachings on love and compassion are not difficult to understand. They are very difficult to practice. So this is an area also that Buddhism has a lot in common with other religions because all spiritual paths and also secular paths they teach about love and compassion and forgiveness and, you know, those kinds of qualities which are very, very important uh, for a healthy human life and uh, for whatever happens after this lifetime. You know, having those qualities is very, very important. Um, but they're hard. Yeah. Because what we often call love, you know, what we think, well, loving somebody is easy. 
Really? Loving somebody in a Buddhist sense means wishing them to have happiness and the causes of happiness. Okay. Now, the person you know that you're closest to in the whole world, you want to have happiness and the causes of happiness, but you want them to have that all the time. What happens when you have a fight? At the moment you're having a fight with your spouse or your parents or your kids, do you want them to have happiness in its causes? Not really. <laughs> okay. So have you know really wishing somebody well all the time? Not easy. Okay. And that's with the people we're close to. What about strangers? What about enemies? Can we wish them well? Do we ever, does it ever enter our mind that the people we don't like, the people we're afraid of and and who harm us, are doing what they're doing simply because they're trying to be happy? And they're not happy? Does that ever enter our mind? Yeah. When somebody is yelling and screaming at you and calling you names or threatening you, does your mind think they're trying to be happy and they think this is going to make them happy? Our mind doesn't think that, does it? Our mind is not concerned with them. It's concerned with me. And they're threatening me. They're evil. They're sinful. They need to be eradicated. I don't care if they're happy or suffering. Wipe them out. Okay? But, you know, when we're calm, when we're calm and we look at the people who who harm us, you know, does it make some sense that whatever they're doing, they're doing because they're suffering and they somehow, in the midst of their confusion, think that this, this harmful behavior they're doing is going to bring them happiness? Yeah? Try thinking that next time. Hmm? Try tuning in to the other person's suffering when they're calling you names and this and that, you know. In other words, at that point, forget about yourself, you know. Forget what names they're calling you. That doesn't really matter. Yeah, because people call us all sorts of names. People even call the Buddha names. People call the Dalai Lama names. Yeah, so people calling us names... You know, we don't need to be too focused on that. Yeah. But but look into the heart of that other living being and say, oh, they want to be happy and they're not happy right now. Hmm? See if you can do that. Try training your mind in doing that. It, it It's quite extraordinary to do that. Okay? So... Uh, you know, really training the mind in love and compassion, forgiveness, 
cherishing others, reaching out to them. And not just because we want a reward, and not just because we want them to do things our way, but really because we care. So this involves a lot of mental training. Okay? And then in addition to really say, I'm going to actualize all my inner potential and become a fully enlightened being to benefit them the most. That's really hard. You know. Because our present mind is like, yeah, I want to benefit you as long as you do what I say. And I want to benefit you as long as you say thank you afterwards and praise me. Right? I want to benefit you as long as I get a receipt. (laughs) But, uh, you know, real benefit, you know, we don't really always get receipts. That's not the purpose of it anyway. It's, It's training the mind to take delight in the giving. And then also really making a strong determination to rid ourselves of even the subtlest of obscurations so that we can be of the greatest benefit to all beings. And so here too, the Tibetan tradition has a lot of teachings, you know. There's a lot of teachings that uh, involve the contemplative or whatever saying reflection kind of meditation where we actively think about things And then there's meditations, uh, for example, in the tantric tradition, where we imagine being able to uh, be of vast benefit to other living beings. Um, There's meditations where we we visualize taking on their suffering and giving them our happiness, just the opposite of what our mind usually wants to do. Because usually if there's suffering to be had, you can have it and I'll take the happiness. But this meditation is quite the opposite of it. So it, you know, really increases our love and compassion for others. Okay? But in other words, this whole perspective of uh, different types of meditation and different types of practice uh, is included in the, in the Tibetan tradition. Um, it's recommended that we learn all the different teachings, okay? That we have the global world view, yeah? And that we then do as many of these practices as we can. You know, we may emphasize one or another at different times in our practice, but to eventually train our mind in all of these practices, um, because our mind is a very complicated thing and, and one practice or one meditation alone uh, won't deal with the complexity of the human mind. Okay, so that's a little bit about the Tibetan tradition, a little bit about Buddhism in general, too. What I'd like to do is open it to um, comments and questions that you may have. Mm-hmm. I have a question about this idea of um, the impulse going to action mm-hmm. and putting in a reflection. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that with spontaneity? 
Okay. <laughs> so we have impulse and reaction, and how do you balance that with spontaneity? Okay. Well, that is. There's an implication there that spontaneity is good. Right. Right. It's not always good, and it's not always bad. If we have, uh, if we train our mind to have that reflection in between, the, you know, the the impulse and the action, as we our mind gets more and more trained, then the reflection gets shorter and shorter. And the reflection becomes re- spontaneous because we're able to assess the situation very quickly. Yeah, it's like, you know, once once you let's say beat somebody up and you feel terrible about it, the next time the urge to beat him up comes in your mind, you remember how terrible you felt and how much harm it was, and you decide to to stop. And if that was a powerful experience, you remember that quickly and you make your decision quickly. Okay? So there, there is some spontaneity in there. But it's always a spontaneity that, is, um, that has wisdom in it. Yeah? Uh, what, you know, our generation thinks that, you know, just be spontaneous, implying that all spontaneity is good. That's not actually true, is it, when you think about it? Yeah? Just acting on any old thought that comes up in our mind? It's actually better we don't when you look at some of the thoughts that come in our mind. Okay. So. Other comments, questions? Um, the last thing you were saying was um, about about the practice and about you know different kinds of doing different kinds of practices at different times. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, one of the things that I I find trying to balance that is you know when you have commitments to do certain practices, and so it's like well do this practice you know every day forever, mm-hmm. and then. Um, and your feelings about that go in and out. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. it's great, sometimes it's boring, sometimes you know it's sometimes it's even like I just can't even do this one more time. You know, <laughs> and so yeah, so some guidance on you know how do you really analyze that and say, well, maybe I should be doing this, even though I said I would do this all you know every time. Maybe I shouldn't do it this time. Maybe I should do something else. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should see what would be. Okay. Okay. So, um, in Tibetan Buddhism, at certain stages of the practice, you may make commitments or promises to do certain practices on a daily basis. And so that's what she's talking about. And, you know, you're saying that sometimes on that day you just don't feel like doing that practice. And um, and you think that another practice may actually be better for you to do in at, at that time. What I would say there is, if like there's a specific affliction that's arising in your mind, or a specific kind of confusion where you know you really need to take some time and think about it, take that time and think about it, and use whatever meditation that 
helps you to do that. And then whatever commitment you've made, that practice, do that very, very quickly. Okay? I think there's really power to keeping the commitment, even though we may do it just quickly. Yeah? Uh, now, you know, you said sometimes you look at it and you go, oh, I just don't want to do this one more time. But we can kind of tell that that's a, a pretty weird state of mind because when we look at the content of the practice, it's really a beautiful practice, isn't it? Yeah? So what's this mind saying, I don't want to do this beautiful practice one more time? <laughs> it's, yeah? It's like... That's not a correct mental state, is it? You know, that mental state's a little bit distorted here. So what I do is I come back and I, and I um, think, well, actually, you know, if I put my energy into this practice and think about it in the proper way, then, you know, it really stirs something inside of me. So rather than just dismiss it and say, oh, I'm tired of doing it, uh, what I need to do is, you know, focus on it a little bit more. Yeah, And maybe I can't focus on all of it at the same time, but focus on one part or another. Um, because I find that, that what gives that feeling of, of, like, boredom with it is because actually we're not really focusing on the practice. We're actually just going blah, blah. So, of course, blah, blah is boring, isn't it? Yeah. But when we try, you know, and uh, read the words or contemplate the words, really, you know, with our heart in it, then it's not boring. And there's a certain kind of um, beauty and comfort that comes from doing the practice every day without skipping it, you know, because... Even if you rush through it or whatever, still your mind has changed by virtue of doing that practice. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel that change, and you're glad about that change. And your kids, you don't have kids, but many people have kids. Your kids notice the change. I hear reports from parents whose, <laughs> whose kids tell them, Mom, Dad, Please meditate some more. You're so much nicer after you meditate. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Sage is agreeing that. So, Ryder Naomi, do your practice. <laughs> Any other questions? Comments? Okay, then let's just sit quietly for a few minutes. And in this meditation, just review some of the points you heard and think about them so that you'll remember them and you can take them home with you.
let's rejoice that we were able to spend the morning together in this way. Rejoice at all the positive energy that we created as individuals and as a group. And rejoice at all the goodness in the world. Think of all the beneficial actions people are doing today to help each other. And rejoice at all of them. And then let's dedicate all that positive energy towards the awakening of all these living beings so that they may have temporal peace in this life and the next, as well as the ultimate peace and joy that comes from having spiritual realizations. So let's steer or dedicate all of our positive energy for these very long-term and noble goals. Mm -hmm. 